This is the first attempt on uh, part of uh, SACPA, Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, to have music on. And a lot of people ask me, Beethoven? Public Affairs? You're kidding. You're kidding. So I said, well, come on here, Brian Black, and you see the reason. And Brian is with, uh, going to talk about revolutionary Beethoven. And uh, I believe that this is very current in during the civic election when the cost of performing arts center could be a hot topic. People may question, how come we spend millions of dollars building, playing Beethoven? Uh, it's a political issue, just like a Chopin was a political refugee. And I hope that uh, with this beginning, uh, there will be new dimension introduced to SACPA. Brian Black uh, is uh, Associate Professor of Musicology at the University of Lethbridge. Uh, he arrived in Lethbridge in the same year as I did. So he suddenly became a good friend. Well, not suddenly. Uh, he lived in Montreal, so did I. So we, we go back a long way. He studied piano first at the McGill University under Charles Rayner, earning a Bachelor of Music in Performing Arts. He then studied in London, presumably in England, at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama under Bridget Wilde. Brian earned licentiate from the Guildhall School and an associate diploma from the Royal College of Music before returning to Montreal, where he completed his PhD in musicology at McGill University. I can't turn the page, so let's just go on and ask Brian to come up and start his interesting lecture. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Ted, for the introduction. Also, thank, uh, I'd like to thank the uh, Southern Alberta uh, Council on Public Affairs for inviting me here. It's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to, to talk about, uh, about music here. Um, and I think it's a particularly topical, uh, topical topic, um, considering the present uh, present decisions that are before the, the city and, and how it moves forward. So I'll try to address some of that uh, too. And when Tan asked me to uh, talk about music that revolutionized the world, um, which is a rather large, it's well to say the least, it's a global topic. Um, I'm not sure if the music I'm talking about revolutionized northern Indian um, uh, Hindu uh, music or, the, uh, or, or Chinese music necessarily. So I will be concentrating largely, of course, on Western, uh, the Western classical tradition. And here, you have many candidates for important pieces of music. I could have talked about the Bach B minor mass or the Stravinsky uh, Rite of Spring. These are, these are major works that caused major controversies. When, or no, well, the Bach B minor didn't cause a controversy, but it, it, these are major parts of our uh, repertoire of classical music. 
Um, anything, uh, there are lots of pieces. I've chosen the Eroica, Beethoven's Eroica, because it was written during a particular tumultuous period in European history. It reflects that period to a certain extent, to a large extent, actually. It expresses some of the finest ideals and elements of it in a way that is still an inspiration uh, centuries afterwards. In short, it distilled some of the, the best ideas from a period that was pretty dark and uh, was uh, filled with, with wars and all sorts of problems. It also was a serious period during Beethoven's life where he managed to overcome a very uh, a, a profound problem in his own life. So that this is music that inspires and is inspiring and at the same time transforms what could be negative into something that's very positive. And I think in this way, it's one of the best things that anyone could leave to future generations. So I'm going to be looking at that in particular. First, it's beautiful music. It's music that is written by an expert. More than an expert, I, I, I have to use the term genius, even though that's falling out of favor nowadays. Uh, but something because it has not only great craft in it, but it has a spirit to it. Uh, a spirit which I consider magic in music, where you, you don't know how it happened. You can account for the details. You can account for all the technical ability, but you cannot account for the final effect of this music and the enduring effect of this music across these centuries. Um, it also occupies a particular moment in music history as well as in the political history of Europe. Uh, the political history of Europe is... Uh, uh, it represents ideals that grew up in the French Revolution, and uh, then, were, uh, then were transferred to Europe supposedly by Napoleon as, as supposedly the hero of the revolution, but we'll be talking about that. Um, it also um, occupies a position when music was actually being taken more seriously than it had been previously. This is a change in culture where musicians are no longer simply servants of, uh, uh, of a court, where their music is actually owned by the person they're working for and where they are, they are representing what, the, uh, what the, uh, empl their employer wants, to uh, music as, uh, as, a, as a, public, uh, a public event that is above all represented in the public symphony. Now, the symphony had become... Uh, public concerts had go back to the mid-1700s, but we're looking at the growth here also of the public uh, symphony orchestra and the ideals behind it and the ideals behind making music as, uh, as a public pronouncement. Uh, and I think the symphony itself uh, has many of the ideals of that in it and expresses uh, these ideals beautifully. The, ideal of the, the idea that the composer is more than simply a servant but actually uh, uh, a creator on the same level as a poet um, or a great artist uh, a great painter. Uh, Beethoven at this period uh, re insisted on being referred to and referred to himself as a tone dichter, uh, a tone poet. Uh, uh, he had actually worked as a court musician and he spent in his early life and he spent the latter half of his life as a freelance composer in Vienna. This doesn't mean that he didn't get rid of the aristocracy as his su support. He actually used them quite w uh, with a, a lot of uh, uh, ability. He uh, could sell more than one prince the exclusive rights to the same symphony without actually batting an eye. And he at one time used, used uh, the threat of leaving Vienna to get an annuity from three of the great, greatest princes of the city of Vienna. So he knew how to use his contacts as well. But he is now seen on the level, and he is the one figure in music history who first is given this, uh, this stature on the same level as someone like Homer or Shakespeare. 
And he is referred to this way uh, in many ways. If you take a look, for instance, at your handout, um, the first picture, this is on the, uh, sec- on the back of the first sheet, is a painting from the time of Beethoven's uh, Third, Sym- Third Symphony, around 1804. Uh, it's one of his favorite paintings, and it shows him, now it's not very clear, but it shows him holding a lyre, thus suggesting the god Apollo, and also the, the bard Homer. Behind him, uh, his, his outstretched hand is half-hiding the temple of Apollo. Therefore, he is showing that he is, he is divinely inspired and also one of, uh, of, the, uh, of the highest of all arts. And his face, is look, his, his gesture is one of someone about to speak and about to, to, make, uh, to, to utter something of great, great importance. Uh, so this, is, this, is, this becomes uh, symbolic of him as not just a, a great composer, but of someone who was ahead of his time, who saw into the future, and could create music as something that was greater than the present day and would be for all time. This is something unusual. Uh, it was only starting to take hold in the latter half of the 18th century, and it is something that marks music in the 19th century, and even our, uh, our ideas about it uh, today uh, in the way we approach classical music in a concert hall. Uh, a music that has more than just an entertainment value, but also has a value, a spiritual value, and a moral power to it that can, that can actually build an individual. And this ties in with German ideas of what are called Bildung, uh, or the formation of the character and on education, which becomes an important trend in thinking about education and thinking about the arts throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th century. I think it only was undone by two serious world wars where people began to even question what is culture anyways if it can create these, these terrible things. It's also at the time of the growth of public concerts. These had gone back, go back to as early as 1743 in Leipzig. There are various uh, symphonies that are, that are formed in the 19th century as public enterprises, either through societies of musicians or through uh, or through specific conductors who then assemble orchestras. Even in Beethoven's day, there was no standard orchestra that you could go to and have your pieces uh, performed. You had to actually employ the musicians yourself. In Mozart's day, it was even worse. And you have, beginning in the mid-century, the 1840s, the growth of a number of famous orchestras that are still around today. The Vienna Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic is later in the 1880s, uh, New York Philharmonic also in the uh, 1840s. And these are a public enterprise, and they represent music uh, as, again, a social and an artistic force in the community. Uh, it's not uh, as we have today where you can go into, uh, sit down by yourself and listen to a, listen to a CD on your own. Uh, it is a public getting together. It is a sharing of music together in a very serious way. It's also the time when people start to dim the lights in a house because you don't want to be distracted Previously, at an opera, for instance, you might be talking to your partner or you might be, be having a, a little meal while the, and waiting for the favorite aria to come along or uh, listening to a symphony and only parts of it you like. But now, in the 1800s, uh, particularly beginning in the, in the mid-1800s, you have music as a serious uh, pursuit in which you, you listen carefully, you dim the house lights, and, and you lose yourself in the music and surrender to it. Uh, this, again, is the power of music that is... That is uh, that is celebrated each time you have a public concert. Um, to show you uh, one of the effects of this is uh, the uh, description uh, of uh, Jules Pardalou, who is one of the 
the reformers in the uh, reformers in the French uh, who created one of the first French orchestras uh, for his concerts. He had audiences of up to five thousand people in these concerts, uh, and they lasted from 1861 to 1884. And here's a description of one of these concerts: All levels of society are represented in this multitude. In the parterre, you see an elite of connoisseurs and ascetics. Uh, seats in the main par- uh, uh, amphitheater are shared by all the classes of people. In the upper gallery, students from the Latin Quarter rub elbows with the working men. This whole great attentive crowd holds its breath, waiting for the orchestra's first downbow, as if for the revelation, a revelation from heaven. So that you have also at this time the creation of a stable repertoire. And Beethoven's Eroica Symphony is one of the centerpieces of this repertoire. So that we're talking about the building of a public body of art that is given publicly and that is believed to contribute to the moral and the artistic and the social growth of an individual. Uh, and there's the ideal of, of progress as well. Um, I would ask how many people know the Eroica, but in this crowd I imagine most people know the Eroica. But I would say that even my music students do not know the Eroica Symphony. Very few in my classical classes, I mean, we're teaching classical musicians, know Beethoven's symphonies, period, and the Eroica, very little. Uh, there are maybe some I- reasons for this. Um, I notice, uh, and I feel in this day and age, there's a certain mistrust of music, of classical music, a feeling that classical music is elitist, uh, that it uh, does not answer the present day. It doesn't is not relevant. This this famous term is not relevant to the present day. When you look at television series like Frasier, for instance, uh, going to the opera is a an elite activity that uh, that makes Frasier and his brother above everyone else. It's like getting the right restaurant and the right pedicure, exactly. So that that's the that, those are the uh, the um, the sort of the taint on on classical music. Um, uh, the recent comments by Stephen Harper in the last election about an artistic elite, for instance, uh, wine sipping and uh, going to uh, openings and things like that also show a certain idea of this culture as something that is for only a small handful of people and of not of a general use. Uh, this goes completely against the ideals in which this symphony was conceived. And I will say this, that this music has survived because it is magnificent music and it has talked to each generation. The problem is it has to be, it has to be played and it has to be heard for its message to be felt. Uh, so that I feel that this is a really important aspect of what, what will be done in the future in the city as well. Well, have, how many have actually, have actually listened to it? I imagine most people in the room have listened to it. Listened to it a lot, made it sort of part of your life. That would be, I'd say, know it, basically. Um, and I consider this music is our common heritage, at least of the Western, Western traditions, um, something that is, uh, has been passed down and is, is open to everyone. And it's a treasure that I think should be given. That's why I teach music and, and uh, teach particularly classical music. I'm not saying that other musics are, are less. I love the Beatles and uh, the Rolling Stones, and I think they're really great. It's, uh, they're... They're just different types, but they're good music, too. Um, we're going to look at the symphony, its circumstances of its composition. 
uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the individual movements and then uh, play the first movement, so, and, and various excerpts from it to talk about it. So in this symphony, you have a parallel in careers between the two people involved. Beethoven supposedly first thought of writing this on the theme of Napoleon Bonaparte, and this is fairly well established. But he then re removed the dedication to Napoleon for various reasons. So I'm going to look at, at uh, if you want to look at your handout, I'm just going to go through the two careers of Beethoven and Napoleon at this time. Napoleon's career occurred at the end, began to rise at the end of the, of the uh, French Revolution. Robespierre was, uh, was overthrown and executed in 1794, and the terror began to relax a bit. There were still dangers, and Napoleon actually went through a period of danger himself. He defended the convention, the government at that point, by what is called euphemistically the whiff of grape shot. Well, uh, grape shot is quite a nasty bit of, uh, uh, of uh, military ordnance. It, uh, uh, it's packed in, these little balls packed into, uh, into a bag, and they spray the crowd with uh, little mini balls that will kill and maim. And when the crowd marched, uh, Par Parisian crowd marched on the convention in 1795, he caught them in the street. He, be, he was the artillery officer they turned to to help him, them. And he, with a daring action, bringing cannons in, 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 into the city uh, by a daring night ride by, his, uh, by Marshal Murat, uh, well, by that point only a general, uh, he managed to uh, basically mow down the crowd when they tried to take the assembly and save them. And his star started to rise from that point on. He was command, appointed commander of the Army of, of Italy in 1796, he took an army that had barely two guns, uh, one gun per two people. Uh, so many had no boots. He brought them into the Italian, uh, down uh, through the uh, through the uh, uh, Alpine passes. He uh, he uh, then managed to defeat first the Piedmontese army, then the Austrian army, over and over again. Uh, at the Battle of Lodi, he harangued his his soldiers for three hours before he then loosed them on a bridge. They have to charge across this bridge in into the mouths of cannon that were spraying it and just. They managed to charge across this bridge. They were brought to such a fever pitch that they took, they took the town. So he became, he just went, went through Italy and managed to sign the uh, peace treaty uh, just a few, uh, about 40 miles away from the city of Vienna. Uh, 1798 sees his uh, Egyptian campaign where he lands in Egypt, fights the, uh, the uh, Egyptian armies, uh, the Turkish armies, uh, under the shadow of the pyramids and defeats them. So that he's already become... Um, Someone, uh, somewhat of a, a popular figure, and he comes to represent, as, as this goes on, the ideals of the French Revolution, which he brings into various countries, so the ideals of liberty, equality, freedom, etc., to, uh, to these people. In northern Italy, for instance, those who follow him are on the more progressive side, whereas you have the reactionaries. Uh, if anyone's interested, The Charterhouse of Parma by Stendhal is a wonderful book going over this political situation between the reaction and the, and the, uh, and the progressive elements in Italian society. And it's a very powerful and very beautiful book. Um, when the directory is... He overthrows the directory. He's used as a dupe by, by members, uh, by, the, uh, the, uh, by people who thought they were more politically savvy than he was. And he is one of the main people in the overthrow of the directory in 1799. He's made first consul. And from that point on, he has his clutches and power. And you have a steady rise. He's consul for life in 1802. And then he is made emperor. He very humbly allows himself to be made emperor in 1804. And that has a bearing on the symphony as well. If, and this is his, he represents a, a, a figure that represents almost raw power 
force and also like a, a cleaning wind that is sweeping through Europe uh, and, uh, and, creating, and, and overturning the old, or old order and creating the new order uh, that is based upon, quote, supposedly based upon the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity. The fact that as he becomes more and more embedded in power, he keeps giving away princedoms and uh, other things to his family and various other friends and cronies, that's another thing we'll talk about. But he is behind the Code Napoleon, which is one of the great legal codes and all sorts of, and, and also one of the first rulers in Europe to give freedom to, of religion to the Jews in, in Paris. Uh, and he does represent some very progressive ideas. Here, uh, in the next page after the Beethoven photograph, is part of the propagandistic painting Jacques-Louis David, who's a very strong uh, uh, supporter, of course, of Napoleon and was a, a revolutionary himself. We voted for the death of, of, King, uh, of King Louis the Sixteenth. Uh, has him painted as crossing the Alps on his Italian campaign. This is in 1800. He is supposed to have gone to Napoleon and said, Sire, I believe I will paint you as... A sword, uh, as a, a great general in the midst of a struggle with his sword drawn and slashing away, and Napoleon is supposed to have said, uh, we don't do it that way nowadays. Could you possibly paint me? No. Paint me calmly s sitting astride a fiery horse. So this is what he's done. And he's put the... Uh, uh, you can't see this in this, but he's put uh, Hannibal, who also crossed the Alps, and, and Charlemagne uh, uh, inscribed on the stones beneath him as a great... You know, he's one of these great leaders. The actual truth of what happened was uh, Napoleon did not lead his troops across the Alps. He waited till the second day when the passes were all secured, and he crossed on a mule. It would have been rather difficult to have painted him sitting calmly on a fiery mule, so he's made it into a horse. <clears throat> Beethoven, on this, at the same time, his career is also rising. He was born in Bonn from relatively lower-class parents. His father was a singer in the court of the elector of uh, Cologne, uh, he, who was himself uh, a brother of uh, the Emperor Joseph II. This man loved music. As a matter of fact, he wanted to have Mozart at his court, but he couldn't. Mozart didn't really return the favor. According to a letter from Mozart, he says to his father, you should see him now. Stupidity, stupidity stares out at you from his eyes. And he's always talking in a high falsetto. The man is totally un, uh, unendurable. Um, anyways, this was the man Beethoven served. As a young, as a young boy, he quickly rose to be an important, uh, to, to take over the duties of organist in, in the court chapel. He was already writing pieces by the age of 20 or so. He, he loved the music of Mozart, and he wanted to study with Mozart. In 1787, he actually traveled to Vienna. He was then 17. He played for Mozart, supposedly. At, and Mozart is supposed to have been at first not impressed, but then when he improvised, Mozart is supposed to have gone to some friends in another room and said, listen carefully to this man. One day he will make the world sit up and listen. When he did manage to go to Vienna, it was in 1792, a year after Mozart's death, and he unfortunately, for him, felt he was choosing second best by studying with Haydn. He and Haydn did not get along well. Haydn was a sort of okay teacher, according to Beethoven, but Beethoven thought he was jealous of him. He resented a lot of things that Haydn said, and when he found that there were a few mistakes in one of his that weren't corrected by Haydn, he went off and studied with someone else behind Haydn's back. He lied to Haydn. There are a number of cases where Haydn was caught defending him to his employer, the, uh, Ar the Archbishop of Cologne, saying Beethoven needs more money, and the Archbishop uh, re replies, well, he's lied to you. This is how much I'm giving him. Maybe he should come back now. He doesn't seem to be doing anything there. Um, early on, he was, a great, he was a great pianist, and he set his sights 
to showing the, the Viennese what he was as a composer as well as a pianist. In those days, you had to really shine in front of in the aristocracy and in public concerts. So the first part of his career, a lot of the music that he writes is for piano to show off his own talents. There's one letter to a lady in which he explains, I'm sorry I wrote the trill so difficult. It's because there are these jackasses here who they, they hear me play and then, they, and then they go off and pretend that this is their music. Well, I've given them something that if they can, they, they're asked to sight read it at a party, they'll fall flat in their face. So you don't, don't, don't have to put the trill in, actually. It's not important. Um, his first public concerts start uh, are, are early on. Uh, first public appearance in 1795. In those days, you played in, in public concerts that were, were arranged as benefit concerts for yourself or for a specific um, a specific cause. Uh, first, he play, he creates piano concertos, but the the ideals the 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 music that was very that his his um, illustrious predecessors had written most famously. The symphony and the string quartet, he doesn't start writing until he's in his late 20s because he does it very seriously. So when he approaches the symphony, it's long study and carefully prepared, and that's not until the 1800 that he writes his first symphony. But already, he, by the end of the, eight, by early 1800, he is the greatest pianist in Vienna. His music has already started to conquer, uh, to be going beyond uh, Vienna. And he is becoming a name that will soon rival Napoleon's in, in many ways in, in the music sphere. Um, the main problem with him is a terrible disease that he has that he at first cannot disclose to anyone. Uh, this, in 1800, are the first letters to very close friends where he says, you must not tell anyone this. But, and then he tells how he's been losing his hearing. And then he goes through all of the things that people have been trying. He's been going to doctors to try to get them to help him. And anything from cold uh, to tepid, uh, tepid baths, cold baths, uh, plasters, all sorts of things. And finally he's found a doctor who has promised him that he will, you know, he won't have a full recovery, but maybe he will have a recovery. And this is around 18, 1801 that he's going to the spas outside of Vienna at Heiligenstadt. In 1802, he's working on his second symphony. It's a magnificent symphony in the, li in the line of the Haydn symphonies, the London symphonies, that are the, the high point of Haydn's career as a symphonist. He's already talking about a new style that he wants to try. He's, he's dissatisfied. He says to a close friend, Wegeler, I am unsatisfied with everything I've written so far. I'm now trying a new path. And this is where the, the Eroica comes in. But the crisis that occurs in 1801 and 1802 is, again, his hearing. He's in Heiligenstadt, and he thinks that finally, at the beginning of the summer, things will be fine. But by the end of the summer, things are worse. And it's then that he realizes that he is uh, condemned to lose his hearing forever. This is from his pupil, Ries, who's there at the time. And he talks about the beginning of, his, of Beethoven's problems that he notices. The beginning of his hard hearing was a matter upon which he was so sensitive that one had to be careful not to make him feel his deficiency by loud speech. When he failed to understand a, a, a thing, he generally attributed it to absent-mindedness. He lived much in the country, whither I went often to take a lesson from him. At times, at 8 o'clock in the morning after breakfast, he would say, let's first take a short walk. We went and frequently did not return until 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> so much for his lesson. After having had a meal in some village... On one of those wanderings, Beethoven gave me the first striking proof of his loss of hearing. 
I called his attention to a shepherd who was piping very agreeably in the woods on a flute made of an elder twig. For half an hour, Beethoven could hear nothing, and, thought I assur- and though I assured him it was the same for me, which it was not, he became extremely quiet and morose. In 1802, he believes he's dying, and he writes a final will and testament. This is called the Heiligenstadt Testament, and it's one of the most moving documents in his life. And in it, he tries to explain to, his, to people he's known why he's been such a jerk, basically, over the last few years including to his brothers, with whom he just had serious argument. Oh, you men who think or say that I am malevolent, stubborn, or misanthropic, how greatly you do me wrong. You do not know the secret cause that makes me seem that way to you. From childhood on, my heart and soul have been full of the tender feelings of goodwill, and I was ever inclined to accomplish great things. But think that for six years now I have been hopelessly afflicted, made worse by senseless physicians, from year to year deceived with hopes of improvement, finally compelled to face the prospects of a lasting sickness." Though born with a fiery, active temperament, even susceptible to the diversions of society, I was soon compelled to withdraw myself to live a life alone. If at times I tried to forget all this, oh, how harshly I was flung back by the doubly inex- sad experience of my bad hearing. Yet it was impossible for me to say to people, speak louder, shout, for I am deaf. Ah, how could I admit an infirmity in the one sense which ought to be more perfect in me than in any other, a sense I once possessed in the highest perfection? What humiliation to me when someone standing next to me heard a flute in the distance. He's referring now to Reese. And I heard nothing. Or someone heard a shepherd singing, and again I heard nothing. Such incidents drove me to despair. I would have ended my life. But, and now this is something that is taken up as a theme also in the Eroica, the idea of heroism. I would have ended my life if it, was only, if it were not for my art that brought me back. So that the idea, the new style that Beethoven uh, created at this time is an extremely powerful style, a forward-driving style that is associated with struggle and overcoming. It's called the heroic style, and it marks the whole of his, what's called his middle period. It's one of great dynamism and forward power. He, by doing this, created a model for later composers that became almost the way to write symphonies in the, uh, in the ni- 19th century. A uh, powerful force in the symphony. A symphony is so powerful, it seems to spark, uh, spark off ideas and feelings and images even, so that you get music that tries to describe images. And music that, that seems to represent struggle with adversity and overcoming it. And this is the quintessential quality of the Eroica symphony. Uh, when he first decided to write it, originally it was supposed to be according to his intimate friends, on Napoleon Bonaparte. And he wrote it in 1803, and when he first finished it, it had a title page with Bonaparte at the, type, at the top of the page. The incident, though, incident that occurred, though, uh, is, again, recorded by Rees. Again, and this is also... Uh, corroborated by other friends who were there. And this is Reese's account. In this symphony, Beethoven had Bonaparte in his mind, but but as he was when he was first consul, Beethoven esteemed him greatly at the time and likened him to the greatest Roman consuls. I, as well as several of his more intimate friends, saw a copy of the score lying upon his table with the word Bonaparte at the extreme top of the title page. And at the extreme bottom, Luigi van Beethoven but not another word. 
Whether and with what the space between was to be filled, I do not know. I was first to bring him the news that Bonaparte had proclaimed himself emperor, whereupon he flew into a rage and cried out, Is he then to, to nothing more than an ordinary human being? Now he too will trample on all the rights of man and indulge only his ambition. He will exalt himself above all others and become a tyrant. Beethoven went to the table, took hold of the title page by the top, tore it in two, and threw it on the floor. The first page was rewritten, and only then did the symphony receive the title Symphonia Eroica. Later, he basically changed it to a symphony dedicated to the memory of a great man, which is, I think, very revealing. So that for him, the symphony represented the greatest ideals that Napoleon had in the popular imagination come to represent for the state, for humanity in general, and for the general progress of mankind. This symphony is a revolutionary symphony in many ways. It is the longest symphony that had been written so far. Most symphonies, and we're talking about great symphonies, the wonderful symphonies of Mozart, the last symphonies of Mozart and of Haydn, the, the London symphonies of Haydn, would be approximately half an hour. This symphony is close to an hour in its writing. It's double the size. Each of the movements is gigantic in relation to what had been written before. It has an opening movement that is so full of power and is so uplifting Uh, It itself is close to 20 minutes, about the size of a symphony of the 1770s, a whole symphony, all the movements of that symphony. Uh, It is filled with an immense power and forward drive, uh, and it goes through moments of extreme tension and of extreme dissonance, and then always emerges powerfully. Then comes a funeral march. The funeral march itself is extremely long, and it is based upon the funeral marches that were celebrated, public celebrations for great heroes of the Republic in Republican France. I'm going to go, actually, as I talk about each movement, I think I'll play a little bit, and you can hear the, 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 each, the opening. So maybe we'll start with the opening of the first movement. Now here you're going to, oh, there is no piano here. Okay. Um, the opening melody that you hear is actually an E-flat arpeggio. It's like a horn call, basically. And it almost itself represents here, oh, oh. You have these opening hammer blows that set the, the set the, the the whole feeling, and then you have this this uh, in the in the cellos and double basses you have this this horn like call that's like a call to arms, uh, and then these syncopations these are offbeat accents. All of this uh, all of these will become important parts of the of that movement, uh, and will be uh, a generative force in the whole piece. So.
The second movement, as I said, is a great funeral march on the memory of a, of a basically hero, I guess. He'd already written a funeral march in his funeral march piano sonata uh, about a year before. And now he brings it to vast and it's expansive uh, funeral march, as I said, based upon the funeral marches of Republican France. Uh, I have an example here of one of them by Paisiello, uh, an Italian opera composer who was in France and was a, a follower of Napoleon's, actually, in 1799, on the death of one of the great French revolutionary generals, General Hoche. Um, it is... Uh, it has a lot of the ideas uh, that you find in the, in the Eroica Funeral March, um, and it is programmatic. It talks about, it says it represents confusion, distractions, suffering, and uh, sorrow of the people, uh, renewed unrest, cries of grief and agony. All of these are across the score. So we can hear just a little bit. I'll, I'll cut it very quickly. You hear muffled drums and a really deep and profound... Beethoven creates the same thing, but even more profound and more beautiful in his, uh, in his funeral march. It's much, much longer than this one. This one's 11 minutes. I've forgotten how long his is. I think it's close to 15 or 16 minutes for this. And it has everything in it. It has moments of hope, moments of consolation, and then incre incredibly powerful suffering. For me, the power of this music, and as also as a public outcry, is I'm reminded of when Pierre Laporte was murdered during the October crisis, that during that day, the one piece that was played over and over again was the funeral march from Beethoven's uh, Eroica Symphony. And this is the only piece I can think of that would express the amount of horror and public grief at that particular moment.
This is answered by one of the most uplifting movements, the scherzo. Scherzo is actually a, a sped-up minuet. It's something that is associated with Beethoven above all, though the first person to call this type of movement a scherzo is Haydn in his Li Scherzi quartet, quartets. Uh, he took this, I, the minuet was, usually in a symphony you're going to have a, your first movement, uh, then, uh, then a slow movement, then you'll have a minuet, and then a finale. Or you can, you can, have, the, you can have the minuet before the slow movement. It, it all depends. Um, Beethoven then took the minuet, sped it up, and he called it a scherzo, which means an Italian uh, joke, basically. But this is a cosmic joke. This, is, this has amazing power to it. And it's out of the darkness comes this, this, this burst of sunlight. It's just wonderful. Um, then for the finale, this is a great expansive finale, and again it uh, evokes ideas of heroism because it is based upon a dance from his ballet, The Creatures of Prometheus. Prometheus is, of course, the titan that brings fire to mankind. It is actually seen as the beginning of civilization for man, despite Zeus, of course, being against it. Now, it's not the gruesome Greek uh, epic, basically, where he's tied to a rock with a... With a oh, wow. <laughs> with a... I'm in love with my own voice, um, with, uh, with an eagle eating out his liver every day. Uh, this is one where he, is act he actually brings civilization to mankind sort of by creating a man and a woman, and they, they're brought to life in the ballet, and eventually he's actually killed in the ballet. It's really a weird sort of potpourri of things happening, and I think he's brought back to life. For, I'm not sure. I'll have to read the, the, uh, the scenario. But he, he endows them with, with the civilized ideas, basically. And this was music Beethoven wrote for that ballet. And his favorite dance was the finale, the contradance uh, that, uh, that he used for it. So the figure of Prometheus also brings to mind the idea of heroism in this. Uh, what's interesting about this is he also wrote a set of piano variations on it, and they are the basis for this finale. It's a set of variations. But again, it has all of the emotional world of all of the other movements in it. There's, one, there's, there's moments of, of actually humor, and you're going to hear the opening uh, with humor in it. But towards the end, there's this one of incredible grief that returns, and then is overtaken and just blown, uh, blown away by this, this again, this, this beautiful uh, uh, sunshine that, that ends with, with so much uh, optimism and hope. Um, as a joke, and he did this in the piano variations, which are called the Eroica variations as well, he doesn't begin the variations on the melody. He does it on the bass line. So you don't hear the melody until the third variation. 
So you hear the bass line, then some other variations going against it, and finally you get the melody. Now the bass line is all broken up, so it doesn't make sense at first. It's only when you get the melody that you'll actually hear how it makes sense. So this is, he's noted for some unusual uh, sense of humor, and this is one of them. So start with this, this flourish from the orchestra, and now what you're going to hear is the bass line of the melody. Here we go, and it's done. I can't hear it. Oh, now it's coming, okay. I mean, what does this mean? Second variation. We still haven't got the melody yet. Now at last the melody. Um, okay, this is a symphony that when it first came out caused not the, the most wholehearted acceptance. So this is from the first review. There was a first a semi-public uh, performance of it that Beethoven conducted himself in the apartments of uh, Prince Lobkowitz, to whom the symphony was dedicated. Uh, it, people weren't, no, didn't know how to figure it out. There's one moment in the first movement where Beethoven has a tremolo, uh, strings trembling, on one chord, uh, the dominant chord, the dominant seventh chord. He just has two notes from the dominant seventh chord. I wish I had the piano here. I could play it for you. And then he has the melody come in on the tonic, a totally different chord, which you never do that in those days. I mean, I mean, what was he thinking? And supposedly a friend of his, uh, Rees was standing beside him and said as Beethoven's conducting, damned horn, Candy County came in too early. And Beethoven turned to him and said, I wrote it that way. So... Um, 
And even later in the century, Berlioz said, what was this person thinking? I mean, this is such, this only the composer, such, such bizarre uh, behavior. But when you hear it, it just sounds like a, the distant horn, and then it brings in the, uh, the, the return of the horn call, basically. Um, it was not looked upon well at first because of its length and the dissonances, the, strong, the strength of this mu- music. This lengthy composition, extremely difficult to perform, is in effect a very elaborate, audacious, and wild fantasy. It is by no means lacking in striking and beautiful passages in which one recognizes the energetic, highly talented spirit of its creator, but very often, however, it seems to lose its way in complete disorder. This reviewer is certainly among Herr von Beethoven's most sincere admirers, but he must say of this work that he finds too much that is harsh and bizarre in it, so that it is extremely difficult to view as a whole, and unity is lost. And oddly enough, Beethoven is the model for many musicians of organic unity, and this symphony is held up as one of the examples of this. And another reviewer from a a second performance a few weeks later, if Beethoven continues on this path, both he and his public will be sufferers. Feeling of fatigue uh, ensues from being crushed by a mass of unconnected and overloaded ideas, a continuing tumult of all the instruments, etc. But this this quickly was washed away, basically. Even within the second year of its performance, it was being heralded as a great masterpiece. And we have here a number, and over the century, it becomes the staple, one of the most important staples of the uh, repertoire for for orchestras. Um, And just the opposite is seen in Beethoven. Beethoven is heralded as first, the heroic itself becomes Beethoven's heroism. In public reception, Beethoven's heroism struggling with his deafness and still creating out of this deafness masterpiece out of masterpiece. It's also seen as something that is uplifting, as, a, as almost like a public celebration. Uh, the power of Beethoven's music becomes the source of inspiration for composers and, and, and also philosophers like Nietzsche and that uh, for, many, uh, for, for generation after generation. This is E.T.A. Hoffman talking about uh, Beethoven's instrumental music in general. The instrumental music of Beethoven opens the realm of the colossal and the immeasurable for us. Radiant beams shoot forth through the deep night of the region, and we become aware of gigantic shadows which, rocking back and forth, close in on us and destroy all within us except the pain of endless longing. For him, the main motion of music was endless longing, and this is the great romanticism. um, Berlioz uh, compared it to a great epic poem like the Iliad, Wagner, for instance, saw in it the gradual coming together of a true thinking human being, of a great artist, and it is a, a, it's like a, a, an autobiography of how an artist is created, and you see it happening before your eyes. And this is what he sees, or ears, I should say. The artistic expanse of this work is filled by all the manifold interwoven feelings of a strong, complete individuality to which nothing human is unfamiliar. So that Beethoven represents all of the emotions in hum- humankind and brings them out in this work and, and brings them to a, uh, to a beautiful conclusion, uh, but which contains everything truly human within itself and expresses it in such a way that after most sincerely presenting all the human passions, it attains the fulfillment of its nature with a combination of most deeply felt gentleness and most energetic power. The progress towards fulfillment is the heroic element in this work. And already this work is being seen as heroic uh, 
as an ideal representation of heroism and uh, of, of a, a spirit in mankind that overcomes everything, that, that, that is unstoppable. This, this, as I said, was one of the cornerstones of the early repertoire of classical music, what we now call classical music. Um, what is its relevance today? I mean, does this music still speak this way? I think you can hear it. I, I don't think you have to have taken a music theory course or a music history course to understand how directly this music speaks to you. Uh, it has survived because it does speak this way. And I think this is extremely important in this, uh, in this particular moment in the city's history, for instance, where we've had, I think, the beginning of a flowering of culture in the city. Uh, ten years ago, when I first came here, what I saw here was the Yates Theater, which, was, uh, which still is not a very good theater for acoustics or anything like that. Uh, the symphony had, didn't really have a home. Um, and so much has happened in these ten years. We have... I think the Galt Gardens is now an, is becoming a very beautiful area uh, with the fountains now. We have now the, the SAG has just been uh, reopened uh, to great acclaim, and it is a beautiful site. We have now the planning of the, uh, of the um, uh, Community Arts Center on the old IGA Center. I've seen the, the, the drawings for this. It is magnificent. What's most magnificent about it, though, is it is a place where students, where young children can actually go and learn all the arts in a wonderful setting right near Galt Gardens. And if we have the Performing Arts Center as well, that will be a major attraction for the whole city. It will become the jewel in the center of the city. And there's a place where works like this can be performed, where people who have not heard it before, heard music like this before, can be touched as deeply as, as uh as everyone over the generation, uh, over generations. So I say the music is there. It has this power. It just needs to be played and it needs to be heard. What is particularly nice to hear is that the symphony will be performing for its 50th anniversary, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is another great work that is full of hope and of uh, bringing together uh, vast the, the universe, basically, the, of human humankind. Uh, this is something I don't think the symphony could have done 10 years ago. It has grown so much. This symphony, this, this, whole, uh, this whole community is, is growing in, in, in the arts. The university itself, uh, ha I feel, has grown as well and offers something that is, that is invaluable to, particularly to children and young people. It's disturbing to see many concerts where you're not getting a young audience as well. And I think, and, and that's a question of, of why. Um, there are some who, who do come, uh, but uh, there are attitudes, I think, that have to be combated. And the music itself uh, has, the great, has the greatest audience. But as I say, it has to be heard. You have to, you have, to have people there for it. Um, what is perhaps, I think, the most important part of this sort of music is its spirit and the intangible side of human existence. I've heard it said by uh, some people in the university itself that music is a wonderful adornment for life. It makes music it, life worth living. Well, I would like to answer that by saying, no, it's, it's not an adornment for life. It's actually part of living. It's something that, um, that, 
that becomes a part of what you are and and how you think. Uh, we have lost something in, in previous cultures, the Victorian culture, or the culture of Beethoven's Day, when most people going to, univer- to, the, uh, to these concerts uh, were actually musicians themselves in an amateur way, actually played instruments. Uh, many, uh, you have, for instance, a younger composer like Schubert during Beethoven's Day was, uh, came from a, 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 a family where his, his father was a poor school teacher who had ran a small school in the suburbs of Vienna. And uh, for afternoon entertainment, evening entertainment, the family got together and played string quartets together. And out of that string quartet grew, uh, grew out an orchestra uh, where they performed even concertos and things like this. And Schubert wrote his first four symphonies for that orchestra and his first, first 13 string quartets for the family quartet. So that there is an active participation and understanding of music. We have that also here in, in, in the university. Many of our students play instruments. We also have many students in the new digital audio arts program who are composing music uh, directly onto computers and, and in, in that way too. But they need the technical training and the craft to be able to express themselves extremely well. And being exposed to this music gives you that craft in many ways or gives you an, a deeper understanding of how you express some of these things so, so beautifully. Um, it's this intangible that I feel is sometimes lost in modern uh, culture. When people talk about the benefits of classical music, they talk about the Mozart effect so that you can increase spatialization and memory in children. That's okay. But also there's a spiritual aspect that you, you need to, you need to in- encourage as well. And an understanding. Music can teach compassion and it can also teach a type of uh, uh, connectedness that you don't get necessarily from sitting on a computer and looking at YouTube necessarily. So there are many benefits to this music, and I think that the Eroic is in the forefront of this and was a piece of music that, that uh, didn't actually necessarily cause people to rethink things, but was at that time when music was being understood as a major art that could have such a powerful influence, not just on the individual, but on society in general. So, uh, and these ideas have not remained, uh, and... I think we need to reclaim them in uh, this. So I was wondering if it would be okay if we have the time then to, to play the whole first movement of the Iraqi. Would that would that be possible? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 